Any other way that we could phrase that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> you guys want attention for this podcast or not? <laughs> Welcome to episode 31 of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. We have another guest episode today, and we are very, very, very excited to welcome Brad Stone. David will uh, will tell you about Brad before we dive in, but um, I wanted to, uh, to do a little bit of administrative stuff before. This week's show is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. We are exploring sponsorships here on Acquired, and we wanted to do something that aligned with the interests of our listeners and might be a little educational in the process. Here's a brief Q&A with SVB's Min Lee. Our show focuses a lot on the elements of successful M&A. What's one thing that you see that typically makes an acquisition successful? You get to see a lot of different aspects of it, but you know, one of the one things that uh, I've seen that tends to lead to a good outcome is companies that have gotten to know the uh, target over time. So where there are you know either partnerships that exist and um, you, you have a sense of what the culture looks like, so that when you think about down the road, the integration of the the target company is a lot easier when the cultural fit is there and that, you know, there's some alignment with the old, old leadership and, and kind of new vision with new leadership. Awesome. Thanks, man. For those of you who are longtime listeners of, uh, of Acquired, you know about the Slack. But if you're new to the show, join over 400 other listeners of Acquired for real-time discussion, analysis, and news as it's happening, whether it's the Snap IPO, Trello a few weeks ago, AppDynamics, uh, a lot of interesting conversation going on there about the M&A world. And lastly, before we dive in, a big thank you to KUOW, a uh, radio station here in Seattle, who has generously let us record in their studio this morning. Now, David, over to you to introduce Brad. Yeah, we are super honored and excited to have Brad on the show today. Um, he is the uh, actually our second guest uh, from Bloomberg after our great show with Alex Sherman a couple months back. Um, but Brad is the senior executive editor of global technology at Bloomberg. And before that, he covered tech in Silicon Valley for nearly 20 years as a reporter at uh, Bloomberg, um, Newsweek, and the New York Times. Most relevantly and fun for us, um, Brad is the author a few years back of the canonical history of Amazon, The Everything Store, which as listeners know, we have discussed a lot on this show. <laughs> Um, and has had a, a big impact on Ben and my thinking. Uh, it is just a great book that we can't recommend enough. Um, and Brad actually has now a new book out called The Upstarts, which covers the histories thus far of the kind of new generation of defining internet companies, Airbnb and Uber. Um, I've heard of those. <laughs> uh, we uh, Ben and I both read it. It's great. We highly recommend it. We're going to be talking about a lot of the content within it on this show. Um, but definitely go out and, and pick up a copy. Um, if you like this show and history and analysis of um, kind of waves of technology companies, uh, you're going to love this book. So thank you, Brad. We're super excited to have you here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And for and, and for listeners, in, in my kind of typical style, I uh, knowing we were interviewing Brad this morning, just finished the upstarts last night. And uh, I, I loved it. I mean, it's truly, I, I, I talked a lot about the Everything Store in the episode with, uh, with Tom Albert, but really the spiritual successor to, to that Amazon book. And it's interesting how um, it really is the next generation of a lot of the sort of same mentality and tactics 
um, in in Uber that, uh, um, and to a lesser extent Airbnb, but in Uber that uh, we saw on Amazon. Thank you. Yeah, it's hard to follow up the story of Amazon because there's really <laughs> nothing like it. And you know, so somewhere along the journey of trying to find what was next, they decided, okay, maybe there maybe there isn't a follow up. Maybe, maybe you can look at a kind of wave of companies and a defining moment in Silicon Valley, and that's kind of how I stumbled on this sort of dual profile. Very cool. Yeah, it's great. So today uh, we're going to talk about something that um, a story, a merger that probably a lot of our readers know happened recently, but hasn't gotten nearly, I think, enough press uh, in uh, in the Western world, at least. And what press there has been has really been thanks to Brad. He's been the foremost reporter on this. Um, and that's the merger that happened last fall between Uber and Didi Shusheng. Uh, in I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I, I may be butchering it. Um, in China, uh, this is this is a wild story, and um, there are so many lessons here that that I think all of our listeners can take away. And we're really really glad to have Brad here to tell it with us. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the story along the way, but definitely want to credit Brad. You know, it's his story that he did the reporting on. So with that, uh, I'm going to dive in. So we pick up the story in 2012. Uber's kind of already become a you know pretty meaningful household world, household word, at least in the U.S., and, uh, and is starting to expand internationally. They've gotten word uh, that there's this company in London called Halo, which started with the black cabs in London, has had a lot of success there and is and is thinking of is planning uh, plotting to come into the US and threaten Uber here. So in in response and Brad talks a lot about this in the book, Uber mounts a really aggressive international expansion campaign. And at the same time, uh, Lyft and Sidecar have really pioneered true ride sharing in the US, not just the black car um uh, tax, limo uh, and livery drivers that um Uber started with, but uh, true ride sharing where anyone can drive. Uber's responded with UberX and kind of the world is now realizing that the market for ride sharing is orders of magnitude bigger than anyone thought. Yeah. And, and David, it's worth, uh, it's worth kind of noting there that in today's world where we all take uh, UberXs everywhere, or that's the, the most common say when I'm going to take an Uber, it's an UberX. Uber did not pioneer ride sharing. I mean, in they, fact, and they were they were reluctant to embrace it. Travis spent a lot of uh, early 2013 trying to get Lyft and, and another company, Sidecar, shut down in California because <laughs> he saw he yeah. saw it was a disruption. And he thought it was illegal, and when when the California PUC didn't do anything, that's when he uh, embraced UberX wholeheartedly. Huh. If you can't beat them, join them. Exactly. I think that uh, that's kind of Uber's motto, right? <laughs> I want to say one more thing about Halo, though, because there's an interesting lesson in tactics. Halo in 2012 promoted the heck out of its international expansion, and it, that was a huge mistake because they mobilized uh, they they not only mobilized Uber to grow more quickly in the U.S. and then Uber got to markets like uh, Chicago uh, and other cities before Halo ever ever really moved on its promise to expand. But Halo also stirred all this entrepreneurship in China. And so, you know, what you have to understand these days is there are entrepreneurs all over the world that are watching sites like TechCrunch religiously. And it was Halo and not really Uber or any of the other ride-sharing companies that started stirring these companies in uh, in China to start competing. Yeah, and that's that's exactly – thanks for for teaming me up there, Brad. Uh, It's like you wrote this story or something. (laughs) uh, that's exactly what I was going to say that, you know, all around the world, people are starting to wake up to the potential of this market and, and nowhere more than China, uh, are entrepreneurs 
sort of attuned to the size of this opportunity and, and ready to go after it with just kind of aggression that makes, you know, even a company like Uber look tame here, here in America. So there, as Brad writes about, there are about 30 companies between 2012 and 2013 that get started in China, wow. all going after this ride-sharing Uber opportunity. And one of those companies gets started by a young entrepreneur named Cheng Wei, who at the time was a 29-year-old salesman at Alibaba in Huangzhou. And, uh, and he had been kicking around some entrepreneurial ideas with his boss at Alibaba, a guy named Wang Gang. And, and actually earlier that year, they'd kind of started this side project, uh, that they, an app that they called Momo. And Momo was, was essentially, you know, on iOS, the sort of find friends feature. It was, it was essentially that. And so they're working on this app on the side at Alibaba, see the, see the market opportunity in ride sharing and immediately pivot and rename the company DD Dash, which, uh, which translated into English means Hong Kong call a taxi. <laughs> and, uh, and so when they, when they pivot, they decide to leave Alibaba, go full time, um, Cheng is the CEO and Wang invests the initial seed capital into the company and, uh, and they're kind of off to the races along with everyone else. So wanted to ask Brad here, I mean, you spent a lot of time, you know, probably more than anybody interviewing these folks. What did they like, you know, kind of what drove them to, to start this company? Well, I mean, I, I, I just love Cheng Wei. He, he, um, you know, he was, he was great. I should say, you know, his English isn't so good and my Chinese is non-existent. So, uh, <laughs> my, my partner in crime on this story was, uh, uh Lulu Chen, my, uh, one of my Bloomberg colleagues in, uh, in Beijing. Um, and we, you know, we went to visit, uh, Cheng Wei at uh, Didi's headquarters. And I, I loved him because he presents his story as a series of small personal humiliations. <laughs> so he, he like, for example, he, uh, in his very important college entrance exams in high school, he leaves one page blank by accident and gets into a lesser school. And in college, he, he gets a job selling life insurance and he doesn't sell a single policy. <laughs> and then he signs up to, to work at a healthcare company only to find out that it's a chain of foot massage parlors. Uh, and he, he sort of finds himself. He, he walks into an Alibaba office in Shanghai, gets a job, meets, uh, Wang Gang, his, uh, his mentor. And really, they start on their entrepreneurship path because Wang Gong doesn't get a promotion and they start kind of brainstorming ideas. You know, Momo actually, you know, wasn't it wasn't their idea. It was something that's sort of a, a kind of hack that existed on the App Store in uh, in China. And they sort of realized the power of GPS and the, the potential to do things like a halo in China taxi hailing app. And yeah, and then they launched this company called Didi, only to find out that, you know, dozens upon dozens of, of other companies have had the exact same idea. Um, so, you know, here you've got this young kind of whippersnapper in Cheng Wei, Wang Gong, you know, we spoke to on the phone. Uh, he he's very rarely does interviews, but sort of flamboyant uh, investor who, you know, has just by virtue of his small angel investment in Didi, you know, has minted uh, at least a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, it was the, wow. these guys were they had nothing, you know, and it was 30 is the number of companies that launched. You know, there may have been hundreds uh, that spun up mm -hmm. to address this opportunity in Beijing at the beginning of 2012. So, um, you know, they the odds were against them. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, as we'll as we'll talk about, there was, you know, 
they had they had some experience in the industry and knew what it took to succeed in China. And Brad, I think you pointed out in your book that uh, it was it was roughly the the American equivalent of a hundred k that uh, that he put into to Didi as his, his little angel. A pretty investment. good pretty good investment. Kind of on par with uh, Sequoia's six hundred k into Airbnb a few <laughs> years earlier <laughs> that you also cover in the book. I'm also struck by both the similarities between Travis Kalanick and uh, and Shang Wei, you know, in terms of their histories and their failures in the past. Um, I mean, these were neither of them when they started these companies were household names, you know, far from it. But also like the complete opposite in terms of their outward personalities. Like it must have been, you know, did that come through? And as you were talking to both of them, like, you know, this 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 sort of underlying sort of drive that they have that that I suspect has in many ways been motivated by their past failures, but just contrasted with these wildly different surfaces. I mean, I think that this is a cultural thing. It's funny because I've, I, I was recently telling some of my colleagues in, uh, in uh, in Asia, that we need to stop describing internet uh, internet CEOs and, and founders as humble, but I think like they're all trying to present a humble veneer uh, that that you know there's just kind of cultural value in, in doing that. Whereas you know in in, in the U.S., somebody like uh, Travis is you know is is doesn't hesitate to be presented or to present himself as extremely aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, Travis did that over the first few years, but behind the behind the facade, they're very much alike. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons, you know, Didi succeeded and, and beat all these companies is that, you know, Cheng Wei had a, a vision, which is that smart, smartphones and, and technology could make the, you know, could make transportation more efficient than China. Uh, but along with that idealism, there was a ruthlessness to go and pursue that goal, uh, mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, like, like everywhere else in the world, uh, ride hailing, you know, was, was quasi legal in China, you know, and, and, and yet nevertheless, he sent those early employees, um, uh, you know, to, uh, to cities to go and launch without permission. And in some places they were shut down and then, you know, he nevertheless kind of persevered. And that's kind of what it took in this industry, a relentlessness in the approach. In thinking about that perseverance and that relentlessness, you know, as you meet with the the founders of Didi, the founders of Uber, founders of Amazon, do you get the sense that when you talk to these people in person, there's a um, something about them that's just different than other people? That this relentlessness and this kind of ruthlessness, that that sort of thing could be predicted? Like, are they the the inherent forces of nature that uh, that set them apart from other people, or you know, what is it about them? That's the, that's the big question. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't put anyone else in the category of a Jeff Bezos, right? Because he he stands alone and and uh, had had you know had the vision before anyone, you know, that the internet was going to change the world and, and bet so heavily on it, and and then had years of of people thinking that you know Amazon was was really just a boring retailer. I, I don't know that the Ubers and the DDs of the world have suffered the way that you know Amazon and its employees suffered for many years. Um, I think in terms of Cheng Wei, probably what marked him and his story is that, you know, he, and I'm sure we'll get to this, like had, had great people around him mm-hmm. and then was able, I mean, the dynamics of the Chinese market are so unique mm-hmm. that the, the Didi's smartest move very early on was to hook into Tencent. And when they did that, you know, every, everything yeah. became possible. To, to pick up the story there, um, you know, I think what's striking reading the book and, and, and hearing about these the early days of the ride-sharing competition in China is it makes the, you know the Uber Lyft fight that you know we think is is so ugly and, and distasteful you know here in 
here in the States, you know, it makes it look like kids in a sandbox, right? Like these 30 companies were just brutal to each other. Um, and, and in particular, you know, they all started raising large amounts of money um, and then going, being willing to go deeply, deeply gross margin negative by paying drivers a lot more for each ride than, um, than the riders were paying the companies. So it kind of like, it kind of becomes that they're laying siege to each other's businesses in a way, you know, um, this is war. And, and one of the tools, one of the ways that they start raising money is from the large, um, the large, the big three internet companies in China and, and, and DD dash is actually the second one. They raise money from Tencent. Um, but before that, their competitor Quade, uh, raises money from Alibaba, which of course is Cheng Wei and, and, and Wang Gang's former employer. Uh, so, you know, I mean, Brad, you talked to all these guys, like <laughs> what was going on? Right. Well, I think when Kwai D went and, and raised money from Alibaba, it, it was, it was pr- definitely a blow to the DD guys because, you know, that's their, you know, that's their alma mater. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, Alibaba, obviously the e-commerce giant in China. So I think that there was a moment of almost panic, you know, that Alibaba had placed its bet. It was, uh, it was on Kwai D. And, uh, and as a result, uh, you know, Wang Gong, uh, the investor and, and, and Cheng Wei's mentor, you know, his next call was to Tencent. Now, as it happened, then it was probably difficult to see in 2012, but, you know, Tencent has this social network, uh, slash messaging platform called WeChat. That is, yeah. and is which ta- was, of course, QQ before that. You right. Know, on- on the desktop. And, and and this was like, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, right? <laughs> I think that's right. And I think, you know, the, the big moment for this industry, you know, so Kwaidi and DD start to emerge by virtue of the investments of, of, uh, of Tencent and Alibaba. Baidu is still sitting on the sidelines. And what happens at the end of uh, 2013, beginning of 2014, and again, almost sort of lucky, is that um, over the Chinese New Year, WeChat integrates uh, Didi as a way, and there's a product called Red Envelope or, or Red Package, and it's basically a way for, for Chinese WeChat users to give each other small gifts. And the idea of giving somebody a gift on Didi, the gift of a ride, kind of takes off. And both Tencent and Alibaba, the sponsors of these ride-sharing companies, realize you know, that the next battlefield in this long-standing war between the internet giants and in China is going to be mobile payments. And that the taxi companies, the ride-hailing companies, are ways to spur payment value in, in mobile, with, with mobile payments. And so they start to kind of use these two ride sharing companies as proxies and funnel money, you know, right off their balance sheet into these companies as a way to, to drive payment volume. And that is when Didi and Kwaidi start to just take off on steroids, not only growing very rapidly, but burning tremendous amounts of money. Yeah, because this, this siege is continuing and both the, you know, Alibaba and Tencent are pouring tons of money in, but other investors, um, you know, are, are also venture firms and private equity firms also pouring in lots of money. I mean, it, it gets to be billions of dollars that these companies are burning just trying to subsidize rides to get kind of get big fast and beat the other one, right? That's right. And then you've got uh, people like Yuri Milner at DST, you know, who uh, all the big investors had missed on Uber. And believe me, they berate themselves uh, nonstop. And that's an interesting aspect of the story, you know, that these companies 
very early on did not look like the prototypical internet companies. And so, you know, a Yuri Milner who prides himself on hitting all the big ones, uh, passed on Uber. Uh, and so bets big on, on ride sharing or ride hailing in China. And so, um, you know, makes an investment in Didi and then kind of sees this destructive war playing out between these two indigenous Chinese ride hailing companies and gradually over, uh, over to the, throughout 2014 starts to broker a piece. Not only because, uh, both companies are losing a lot of money and just, you know, and, and, and siphoning cash off of Alibaba and Tencent's balance sheet, because, you know, I think that they also had the sort of a foresight to know that Uber was coming and that uh, the yeah. Chinese companies were probably better off together than they were apart. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about the these uh, the, the big three in China. They're investment firms. They're their own business. And in America, like or in the U.S., we, we tend to have. I mean, there's corporate venture, but you don't have like oh, Facebook invested in them, so you know Google needs to go invest in someone else. The, those corporations just just buy companies, right? And then they they subsume them into their offering. But we don't really have this like first tier of funding is kind of corporate venture, like there is. Going well, the to funny China. thing we can make an interesting juxtaposition with Google and Uber because. Uh, Google Ventures invests in Uber. It's, the, it's their biggest investment ever. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they start competing with Uber, right? They <laughs> they roll out a ride-sharing. Uh, well, they, they start talking about the ride-sharing service, but they scare Uber into thinking that maybe uh, Uber will be a competitor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and relations between the two companies are strained. Whereas, you know, Tencent invests in Didi mm-hmm. and, you know, it doesn't, you know, doesn't ever compete with it. And, you know, um, and as a result, you know, it's, it's so it's interesting. It's a different model. I mean... Uh, um, you know, I think I think maybe sort of smart, you know, that kind of Tencent uh, knows that that is not in its uh, core competency. Yeah. Well, it also feels like to an outsider perspective, it feels like these these big three Chinese Internet companies are willing to sort of more directly exercise their influence in the market there. You know, if if, um, if that's the right way to put it, then then the Internet companies are in the U.S. I mean, it's really hard to imagine Google or Facebook sort of giving preferential treatment to, you know, like if Facebook started giving preferential app installs to, you know, one ride sharing app over another or one, you know, other form of, of, of company over another, you know, it, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that going well. Here. You're right. That's a great point. That's a great point. And, you know, not only, and we'll get to this, but not only was, ten, was Tencent prioritizing Didi on WeChat, but when Uber comes into China, it starts blocking Uber from WeChat. Yeah. So I think I think that's a good point. I think that there would be some regulatory or antitrust scrutiny if Google was to play favorites in the way that uh, Tencent and Alibaba did in China. Yeah. So Yuri Milner kind of comes in, brokers this piece uh, between between Didi and Kuwade, and uh, they know Uber's coming. Didi ends up, you know, quote unquote, winning the battle. They get sixty percent of the combined company. Chang Wei stays on as CEO of the company. Um, and I just want to you know, sort of step back for a minute here and talk about this is like two years after these companies were founded. So they go from getting started, inspired by Halo, not Uber, um, you know, uh, having this sort of wide playing field and then a bloodbath emerges. The big Internet companies get involved. They raise and burn billions of dollars. And like 700 days go by, you know, I mean, the pace is just like blistering. Well, and one funny, one funny thing from, from the book, um, you know, there were moments of like 
just technical meltdown for these companies. And they, you know, they mythologize these periods within the company. I think they call one seven days, seven nights, where they worked so hard to prop up the infrastructure that one of the engineers had to go to the hospital because his contact lenses had become sealed to his eyeballs. (laughs) So that kind of tells you how hard uh, and how fast they were moving at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg talks about Facebook going on, quote unquote, lockdown, like, I'm pretty sure the employees still go home at night, but in China, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> well, and, and in crunching the numbers, it looks like it literally was about twice as fast. We can't, we don't know exactly when Uber hit a $1 billion valuation, but they did their Series B on, on $300 million in December 2011, and their Series C in August of 2013 on $3.5 So if you look back at their seed in August of 2009, they probably hit a billion dollars uh, about four years after founding, approximately twice as long as these... Uh, um, you know, their Chinese counterparts. So it really is a, an insane pace. And you just think about the size of the Chinese market and, and how, how, how car ownership is so, is so much less developed in China. And so there was, you know, just more of a hunger mm-hmm. for this kind of service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Uber, you know, as we've been mentioning, um, you know, they're, they're not blind to this too. And, and actually it turns out that Uber had had this kind of like small sort of clandestine presence in China since 2013. There's there's a story that Travis and a few other Uber executives go over to China and, and Travis sort of famously, you know, calls back to headquarters in San Francisco and says like, hey, like I need you to I need you guys to to tweak the tech so that like we can like we're going to go out here. Uh, our executives sign up a few drivers and just like run some tests here in China <laughs> And uh, so they start doing that in 2013, but they're just sort of testing. And then when when Didi and Quade start are in the midst of their merger, that's when Travis decides, okay, he's going to put his foot on the gas and launch for real in China. And Uber does, and pretty quickly, while Didi and Quade are, are consumed with the merger, Uber gets to a 30% market share, kind of right off the bat. So it's now sort of a, they're a real player in in the market. How did that happen so quickly? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We'll go back to like the story of technology in China is always the, is always the story of the big three. And one of the things that happened was, you know, Uber. So w- when they launched, you know, the integration was very poor in China because they were using Google Maps. And, you know, we all know Google is, is pretty much blocked in China. So the integration was poor. And also this idea of, of launching via the, the black car or limo market in China was always a limiting one because it's certain, it's just not that big of a market. So Uber kind of, uh, toodles along for, for a year and a half. And then re, and then, uh, and then makes the, the, the very kind of smart observation that Baidu has sort of missed this wave of mobile payment competition and needs to catch up. So they solicit an investment in Baidu. They start using Baidu Maps, you know, which is much smarter about uh, transportation in China than Google. And the, the product just gets much better. Uh, at the same time, at the beginning of 2014, Didi and are are merging. And, you know, as with all mergers, it's an awkward one and they kind of slow down. So, um, I think, you know, Uber took advantage of, of sort of this opening, um, uh, and, uh, and, and made up some ground, but, you know, as, as, as we'll see, it was, it was, it was temporary. Yeah. So they come in, you know, swinging into the market with Baidu as a partner, get 30% market share and Travis goes over and he meets, 
he meets with Chang. He meets with the you know, the newly merged Didi. And, and Travis is, you know, he sort of walks into the meeting. He thinks Uber's international. Didi's not at this point. You know, Uber has, Travis is, is convinced the better product, the better technology. They have Baidu maps, which are the best maps in China. And he essentially offers to acquire Didi. He frames it as an investment. He wants to invest in Didi, but he wants a 40% stake. And this is really... You know, uh, to my mind, at least, um, seems like he's trying to say, like, hey, I'm just going to take you guys out on the cheap. And Chang and Didi reject this offer. And Brad, you write a lot about this meeting. So what what happened there? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, Travis kind of met his match. You know, one of the things that happens at this meeting is, uh, you know, Ching Wei stands up and on a, on a whiteboard kind of charts Uber's growth since 2010. And then uh, in another, with another fever line, charts Didi's growth since 2012, and, and the lines intersect, and, and he projects that Didi will be larger than Uber, uh, be, primarily because the market in China is so much larger. And, uh, and then the other, there's, there's all sorts of little, funny little uh, maneuverings uh, here at this meeting. And, and one of the, the, the Uber executives were, were wondering whether the food that they had been served at the meeting was deliberately bad as a kind of <laughs> strategic maneuver. Uh, but it wasn't. I think. I think uh, it was. It was actually just a bad lunch. But you know, so there's there's <laughs> a like, royal taste tester. It's like yeah, the, like, like the Middle Ages here. All right. There's a lot of maneuverings here behind the scenes. Um, but I, you know, I think that uh, the you know to their credit, the the DD executives, uh, and at this point, Gene Liu, an executive from Goldman Sachs, is has is she's either advising DD at this time or has joined really as 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 Cheng Wei's partner. And I think there's a belief that um, you know that. As with as with so many other markets in China, the local player uh, will be able to prevail. You know, there's there's a lot of sort of you know, kind of fierce pride, I think, in the Chinese internet market that um, you know that they can uh, that they can hold their own. And and it's funny because I contrast that with the attitude in Europe, where we really don't see that. And so as a result, uh, you know, Travis and his his bid to acquire Didi very early on was was rejected, and they resolved that they're going to fight it out in the marketplace. Yeah, and, and question on that. So, you know, Google doesn't operate in China, and many other large internet giants have, have been sort of kicked out of China and, and, you know, not allowed with the great firewall to, to operate on the internet there. Why was it that, that Uber was able to get to 30% market penetration? And didn't um, Didi have on its side the ability to just say, hey, we're going to make a couple of calls and like, you really need to leave our country? <laughs> I mean, I think that the, the censorship uh, challenges that companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google face are about information and, mm -hmm. and sharing, uh, you know, sharing information that the government uh, in China just doesn't allow. Right. And, and Uber is a transportation tool. So it, 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 was, it was sort of kind of less clear um, that they were violating those rules. Now, I think, you know, there's an argument to be made. I don't happen to believe that was significant, but there's an argument to be made that maybe ultimately the Chinese government did tilt the playing field on behalf of Didi mm -hmm. and slow Uber down, or that maybe in the future, if Uber was going to stay in the market, they would have problems because obviously they do collect sensitive information about where people are and where they're going. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Uber, Uber was not facing those kinds of censorship challenges. And to the extent that all these companies had problems and do have problems. They're they're pretty universal in terms of who who's allowed to drive for these services. Cool. Yeah, and um, you know, Cheng Cheng and Didi, you know, kind of essentially say to to Travis, you know, after this meeting, like, you know, okay, you want you want to fight, like, you know, we can do that. <laughs> Welcome to China, and um, uh, you know, like we we've been through this brawl with thirty other companies. We can we can take you on too. 
And this is where, you know, I know I keep saying this throughout this episode, but really just reading about this is so surprising to me because um, we just don't see this in, in tech here in America. Things go like kind of nuclear at this point. So what happens is Didi and Uber both start raising huge amounts of money to fight each other in China. Um, and, Didi first announces... And not from the usual suspects either. And not from the usual suspects, yeah. You know, they already have the investment from the internet portals, but Uber raises $3.5 billion from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, um, you know, and, and, and Didi raises $7 billion of its own. So that's over $10 billion raised, you know, within a couple months. And they just basically start giving this money away to subsidize rides. And then Didi does something that I think... I suspect even Travis and Uber as Machiavellian as they are in the U.S. couldn't even imagine and see coming. Didi starts investing in all of Uber's rivals around the world, including Lyft in the U.S. and Ola in India and Grab Taxi in Southeast Asia. And they they announced that they're going to literally, it's like the allies fighting the Nazis here. They've formed, (laughs) they have this global alliance to fight Uber that they start building. You know, what were, Brad, what were, (laughs) when people, investors and executives at Uber start seeing this happen, like, what was going through their heads? Well, I mean, I think they were dismissive of the global alliance, you know, because it, it was unclear what it really meant uh, or whether there was much value in sort of integrating each other's apps or how smooth that would be. Um, I think the more meaningful thing, like, you know, Uber was bringing a couple of assumptions to its battle with China that I think are interesting to examine. You know, one, obviously, I think at the time, Travis is pursuing a global network. But this is not really a, a network effects business, or if, if it is, it's very local. So it was sort of unclear that Uber's strength in the rest of the world would even translate into China. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. the, the great contrast is with Airbnb, where I think they do have more of a global network effect because they've got travelers uh, going back and forth across uh, across oceans. The other advantage I think Uber thought it had was a capital advantage. And what we really started to see in 2015 and 2016 was this, you know, this unique capital market where, you know, there were all sorts of uh, unique uh, sources of capital that were willing to shower all these companies with money. And I think it was more, you know, the the fact that Didi goes in and, and, and gets money from Apple uh, or, or, you know, that all, all of these, um, in these sovereign wealth funds start to kind of provide capital that begins to convince all these companies that they are on a sort of unsustainable path. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I don't, you know, I, I, the investment in Lyft, uh, the global alliance, I think the Uber guys, as arrogant and confident as they are, sort of shrug. But it's when, a, you know, it's when a company like Apple or Foxconn uh, gets into the fray and starts putting money into Didi that I think, you know, Travis and Emil Michael, his, his deputy, start to wonder, can they really win this battle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so by the summer of 2016, Didi is starting to pull away. And, and whether that's because Chinese regulators subtly, subtly tilting the field towards them or because of this capital or just better execution, Hard to say, but Didi claims by by summer 2016 that they have 85% market share. So they've won back another 15% uh, that Uber had taken. And they're operating in 400 cities in China versus Uber, which is only in 100. And then apparently it's Uber's investors that start pressuring Uber to negotiate a truce. And Uber reaches out to Didi and says, you know, okay, let's begin peace negotiations and, and, and pretty quickly from when they reach out, you know, Brad, I think you say it's two or three weeks. Um, they come to a deal where Uber sells its China operations to Didi in return for a 17% equity stake. 
and Didi agrees to invest $1 billion in Uber uh, U.S. dollars and get a board observer seat. How did how did how did that that set of meetings you know come together and, and differ from that first meeting when Travis went over? Yeah, well, we first of all we should you know we should be clear that this is not a bad deal for Uber, right? It's a sort of a, remar- yeah. a remarkable retreat, and um, you know tw- you know nearly twenty percent of of what will be kind of their major international rival. You know, a billion dollars investment to kind of recoup some of the some of the massive losses. Um, you know, I think I think at this point, um, this was a very respectful set of negotiations, primarily between Gene Liu uh, of Didi and Emil Michael uh, from Uber. Um, you know, culminating in this, uh, as I depict in the book, this kind of famous uh, uh, a drinking session between Cheng Wei and Travis <laughs> in Beijing uh, the, over the over the summer of 2016, where they're drinking baiju, and Cheng Wei was sort of hilariously dismissive of Travis's drinking abilities. Uh, <laughs> but of course, by, by Jew, by Jew is not for the faint of heart. Um, you know, I, I guess I don't have much illumination on how they, they came to kind of 17 or 18% ownership stake. Uh, other than that, this is what sort of the market was suggesting at, at this time. And, you know, and, and for DD, it's a great deal too, because, uh, they kind of win, um, you know, they, they win, uh, not just the Uber China brand and its customers and all those employees, but basically an open playing field to be the primary, you know, kind of transportation innovator in the world's largest transportation market. Yeah, and and we'll you know we usually save this more for the end when we um our, our evaluation criteria. I think we're going to look at Uber here and say you know was this usually we look at the the M and A event and say was this a good use of funds? Was this um, you know impactful and multiplicative in the future to bring this company in? And so the, the lens I think we should look at this through is was it a good move for Uber to in, engage in all of this activity and then leave with a seventeen percent stake in in Didi and like. If you just look at the raw dollar leverage, I mean, it's a very short period of time of blowing $2 billion to get almost $6 billion in, in value of you know present dollars. And you know, the hope is is uh, you make that investment and that DD continues to, to, to grow in value in China. And you, you raise a great point. One of the best markets in the world, or the best market in the world, the biggest market in the world should get remarkably bigger than, than Uber itself. So I'll, I think it was a good deal for Uber, and I'll give two reasons. But I'm I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Um, you know, one um, the and Uber may not have known this, but the regulatory environment in China was about to change for all the ride sharing companies, and a lot of the big cities have now said it is illegal to drive for these companies if you don't live in the city, and that has constrained the supply of DD and uh and and slow down its growth. So I think Uber got out at, at probably the right time. If you if you've got a constrained supply, being in a battle for the hearts and minds of drivers is not the position you want to be in if you're the foreign company. Yeah. And and for listeners, yeah. uh, Brad was telling us this earlier. I I had no idea. I think this is this is super uh super new, super interesting and um I hadn't fully thought through it. Like Brad, why do you think it's advantageous and why would you think a, a city would would um, legislate that. It seems like it's only good for business to have Well, I think it's protection. It's protectionism. I mean, I think that the yellow cab fleets pay, are, are a major source of revenue for cities and the mm. fees and taxes that they pay and protect perhaps the medallion fees. Um, and so I think that's one reason. I think they've, they've kind of tipped their 
fingers on the scale, as like as the taxi companies have done all around the world. And then I think the second reason is there's a rational argument around traffic and congestion, and obviously all the Chinese cities struggling with it mightily. That might be a little bit of a cover story mm-hmm. for for just protectionism. Uh, and and of course, you know the the pendulum may shift. Um, but I think for now, Didi is kind of fighting that regulatory battle, and and they've reorganized, restructured their company a little bit to put more emphasis on some of their license, their chauffeured offerings, and their and their commuting alternatives like buses. I think the other thing that happened, and the reason why this was a smart deal probably for both companies, is it became very clear over over the last two years that this market was about to undergo a major pivot into into driverless car technology. And so it really doesn't make a lot of sense to go uh, waging a war and spending a battle for a market that's going to be changing very quickly. Mm-hmm. And now both Didi and Uber are spending a lot of that money that they might have been spending on subsidies uh, investigating the future. And I think that's a smart approach. Do you know if Didi is also working on a, a self-driving car offering? They are. Yeah, they're, um, they're, they've, they've been trying to hire some folks and uh, they've got a team and um, uh, and uh, you know and, and they've got some partners. I think Baidu is also exploring it in China, and yeah, as as is everyone now. And it's it's of, of course very fashionable to say you're looking into it. Yeah. It's unclear to me now whether you know whether <laughs> Didi has made the progress of say Uber, which is testing cars now in, in Pittsburgh and a few other cities. Yeah, and one thing I learned from from your book, Brad, is is how fast uh, or how recent Uber is to this this uh, sort of area of self-driving cars that they really weren't tipped off to it until Travis got in one of the self-driving uh, Google cars when he went to meet with uh, uh, was it Larry Page, Eric Schmidt. That's right. It was Larry Page. But even then, remember, he that, that that's my times are messed up, but I think that's 2013. Even then, he believes that Google will be Uber's partner right, in right. that effort. And, yeah. it, and it was only at the Recode conference in, in late 2014 where Sergey Brin is talking about it in a little bit of a dismissive way toward Uber. Um, and Travis had gotten wind that Sergey was going to talk and, and maybe announce its own sort of Uber competitor that I think Travis starts, starts to realize that Uber is not, uh, that Google is not a partner in, in self-driving cars, but, but a competitor. Mm-hmm. And that is when he begins to invest uh, very seriously in, in, uh, in self-driving cars. Gotcha. Yeah. And there's, um, well, let, we'll move on. Let's move on to acquisition category and then come back to grading. But um, before I do, I just want to say, you know, we're recording this episode here in the middle of February in 2017, um, you know, because the deal has happened, but the story is is kind of far from over. Yeah. You know, just last month, Didi announced that they were going to invest $100 million in a company called 99, which is the primary Uber competitor in Brazil. Um, so they, they sort of, you know, all is quiet on the, on the, you know, Eastern front of the battle in, <laughs> in China. But, um, but I think this is, a you know, the war is not yet over, uh, an armistice may be signed, but, um, you know, I think, I think I predict that we will see more Uber and DD, you know, going head to head throughout the world, you know, in the years to come. Yeah. The interesting analogy is that it's, it was the battle for China is, is settled, but the, at the end of the day, these are both global companies. And you know, they, yeah. if if not now, then that's an aspiration in the future. And and they're global companies in a market where it's really not clear that being global gives you that much of an advantage. Yeah, like to your to your point yeah. about network effects, it seems like with Airbnb, it's you know, it's, it's highly advantageous to have have uh, uh, people everywhere on a single network since they travel a lot. Or you could imagine like a eBay or Amazon, where it's even stronger of a network effect because it literally it's it's all shipping. It doesn't matter where you are. But with Uber. You know, shy of having to download a new app when you go to a new place, it it really doesn't seem 
that strong. It seems like these pockets of network effects that that better describe the service. Yeah, and there's a belief at Uber that kind of technology will make a difference and that they can move kind of learnings around the world. But it's just not clear to me. Like the, the the continued strength of Lyft in a lot of U.S. cities, I think, is indicative of like, you know, maybe as long as you pick somebody up within three minutes, yeah. maybe nothing else matters. And, <laughs> and you know, that like yeah. Ola in India, you know, knowing that market, knowing the, the cash habits of, of those people – you know, knowing just how how to press the buttons of city governments, um, or or you know what what to do in, in streets that are just utterly congested. I mean, that's an advantage. Not to say that Uber doesn't have that because they have local mm-hmm. offices and very smart general managers. But you know, I think there, there's a reason that Uber hasn't run the table yet. Right, and and to your point, it's not that they aren't great at those things. It's that they don't have a structural advantage by gaining the position that they're in to necessarily make that N plus one market any easier than the N market. Right. And I think that they thought that capital would be the ultimate advantage, mm-hmm. but all these other companies have been able to fund, fund themselves just fine. Yep. Yeah. Ah, so much good stuff for tech themes. Um, let's do category real quick. Ben, what's, uh, what's your take? So for uh, new listeners to the show, we normally uh, assign a category of people, technology, product, business line, asset or other and uh asset we added a a few episodes back when um, we were talking about purchasing a data asset um and uh in this episode i am going to go with other and possibly create another one too this was a takeout i mean this was a, a uber was not buying something here that that they couldn't otherwise get by you know making a talent acquisition or 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 buying a, a an interesting new technology company. This was literally you are a massive competitor and we it is massively disadvantageous for our business for us both to be fighting here. It's so. like geopolitical, <laughs> yeah. right? It, yeah. it was a yeah. it was a peace <laughs> treaty. It was it was Yalta. Yep. You know, we will we will yeah. cede this country to you and uh, and and be putative allies. Uh, and of course, they took seats on each other's board. Yep. Uh, and yet, uh, it's an uneasy peace. Yeah. yeah, the category I was going to go with was sort of like, you know, marketplace consolidation, sort of like we talked about with Kathleen Phillips in the Zillow Trulia mm. episode. But um, but uh, but the twist I was going to add is, you know, it's incomplete, right? Like it's it's a marketplace consolidation in, in one part of the world. But the fight continues elsewhere, as we've been talking about. Yep. So we should make bets on how long we think they'll be on each other's board. Yeah, they may. Who knows? Yeah. For all we know, they're they're not even, or that was a, a little illusory to begin with. I mean, they, they, those were not voting seats, as as far as yeah. I understood it. So, and that's a heck of a long way to travel for a board meeting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, that may have been optics. Yeah. What? Uh, so, what would have happened otherwise? I mean, Brad, I'm curious for you. Like, if they kept fighting, like, how long could this have gone on? You know, I think I think um, it could it could have gone on for a long time, but um, it would have been destructive to Uber and other parts of its business. You know, it 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 was um, you know it was fighting a multi front war. Instead of fighting in China, they they kind of reinvested in their India operations, so that wouldn't have happened. And I think they would have moved less aggressively into into driverless uh, cars and trucks. So they recently acquired Auto, a driverless car, uh, a driverless truck company. And, you know, and, and so perhaps we would, we would be, we would continue to see this war in China, but less activity in other parts of Uber's business. So I don't know that they were constrained with capital. They phrased, you know, 12, 13 billion plus. They could have kept fighting, but in the end, for what? You know, for, for points of market share. Mm-hmm. And uh, another, uh, another thing to factor in here is if they hadn't gone and spent a couple billion dollars in China, kind of waging that war, 
could they have uh, focused on an earlier IPO? I mean, it's been eight years now that Uber has been around and, you know, they, they've gotten these capital, they, they went and aggressively raised capital from all sorts of different places to wage this war. Like, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive, but should they have IPO'd by now? What would have been the advantages of that? Well, I mean, they weren't, they haven't been constrained in raising money, right? So right. If, if anything, that would, that would be embracing a whole set of, of uh, challenges and, obligations towards transparency that clearly particularly with every you know with all the troubles that uber has had recently in the press you know the company's sort of not ready for so right. um you know i don't know i don't know i think it's probably valuable that they haven't gone public so they can kind of get their house in order mm -hmm. yeah but the flip side though is like you know i think um at least in terms of public perception and and honestly as like a user of the product too like um you know, like one story that like just sort of to me as a total outsider, but totally characterizes Uber to me is um, I was in San Francisco. This was probably a year or two ago. I was going to meet a friend who's an Uber employee at dinner and I, I ordered an Uber to take me there. And the driver just started driving in the other direction, like clearly didn't want to pick me up. And um, so I waited a couple minutes, you know, I ended up canceling the ride then had to get another one. It was rush hour. I was like 30 minutes late to dinner. I showed up. I apologized you know, to my friend who works at Uber. And he said, oh, yeah, happens all the time. And I was like, wait, you work at Uber? Like, <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, uh, and I just wonder if, you know, without like, and, and I don't say that to be to castigate Uber, but like they've been fighting on so many fronts for so long. If they'd had if they'd had the space and time to focus a little more internally, um, you know, I wonder if some of these problems that we hear so much about there uh, wouldn't have popped up or, or would be taken care of by now. It's perhaps, I mean, it's a company that, you know, whose, whose founder and CEO, you know, had a kind of manifest destiny to be the, uh, the global transportation innovator and, you know, kind of moved in one mode uh, aggression uh, and, and I think like, you know, all these guys are disciples of Bezos, right? And they're, <laughs> they're kind of following that blueprint of boldness. And, um, but I think it's, it's true. I mean, like, you know, Uber's not infallible. To some extent, you know, it's still very much dependent on the limits of, of GPS. And, you know, I, I was just in, in DC and took, was taking Ubers and Lyfts all around the city. And every single time there was a phone call. Between me and the driver, where are you? What street are you? You know, what street are you on? There's a lot. There's lots of aspects of the transaction that Uber just can't control because it doesn't. You know, can't it doesn't control GPS and you know is is operating on on a smartphone smartphone platforms that it doesn't that it doesn't own. So there's lots of rooms for uh, room for improvement for sure. Let's. I feel like we've been touching on it uh, as we often do throughout the show, but um, <laughs> let's jump into tech themes. Ben, what uh, what do you have? A big one that I really want to talk about is company culture and its impact on business trajectory. I, I think that yeah. um, Uber is one that has been a win-at-all-costs company. And Brad, you mentioned in your book that Airbnb defined its mission and values very early, and Uber didn't really. Their, their mission and values were just keep going and win. And I, I think you had a more eloquent way, eloquent way of, uh, of phrasing it, but... It's really something where they're massively leaving a scorched earth behind them. They've won so far through incredible, you know, boldness and strong headedness. And they're leaving, like, everybody has a different reason to be pissed off at Uber. <laughs> it seems very true, particularly recently. Yeah. And I mean, drivers are, are feeling like they're getting the, the short end of the stick. 
Uber claims that they're their customer, but they're changing the take rate so the drivers get less. With riders, they're feeling like they're getting the short end of the stick on, on surge pricing too. And this uh, this will probably be last week by the time we uh, we release this episode, and there will be new news since then. But just the horrible news coming out of the Uber engineering organization yesterday with the you know misogynistic, sexist behavior that um, Uber has moved incredibly fast, everything in the name of winning, and there's a lot of problems there. And I think that I'm not totally sure this is a tech theme that applies to every other company, but we're certainly seeing it in other companies too, where as everyone is a, a you know either a disciple of Bezos or let's just call it a disciple of boldness, we're really seeing a, a lot of this churn in the wake. And I think as a lot of these uh, mega unicorns get ready to start going public, that's going to be a major issue for them. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I, I, th- I, th- I did think it was interesting that Uber kind of came late to developing its its values. And, and when it did, when Travis did present them to the company in 2015, they, they very much mirror Amazon's. In fact, some of them are quite similar. And I think it's a company to some extent that is still searching for its identity. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and like I don't, you know, first of all, I, I don't jump to conclusions about the about the um, broad. I'll say I don't jump to broad conclusions about the engineer who blogged about her time at Uber. I think it's it's deplorable what she went through, uh, but it's hard to reach broad conclusions about a company culture from an anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, we will see if if others kind of follow in their wake um, and how well Uber does in address you know investigating and addressing her cl- her claims. But I mean, I think it's true that you know this is a company that, as they all are in in, in rapidly growing uh, internet world, that was marked by a lot of chaos early on. And mm-hmm. yeah, I talked to lots of Uber employees and Airbnb employee, employees in my in my book, whose experiences kind of mirrored you know the the folks at Amazon early on, just chaos. Um, you know, the busiest year, two years of their life, kind of traumatized when they get <laughs> in, uh, when they leave. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I certainly don't want to make excuses for Uber on the on that uh, with that sexual harassment uh, those allegations. But I think you know we're gonna have to we're gonna have to watch. And I think you know calmer heads hopefully will prevail before we kind of reach broad conclusions. I think it's let me put it this way: I think it's unfair to the many accomplished women who work at Uber and have leadership positions to just dismiss it as a frat boy culture. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. and, and and totally. I mean, it's. We're, we're at the beginning of the news cycle on this and, uh, you know, there's lots of, um, you know, that's why <laughs> in, in tech as well as in politics, that's why the role of, you know, an independent inquisitive press is so important. And, um, you know, the story remains to be told, but I think there is no question that, you know, and, and I suspect even people who work at Uber and if listeners, if you do work at Uber, you know, reach out to us and, uh, would love to hear your perspectives, but I, I, I think it's, uncontroversial to say, like you said, Brad, there are a lot of challenges uh, and chaos there that needs to be solved. That seems, that at least seems clear. And I think it's a sort of a hopeful sign that uh, Travis last year hired an executive from Target named Jeff Jones to, to be his uh, his right hand. Um, I think his, his title is president. Um, and, and one of Jeff's goals for 2017 was to uh, address the rider community. You know, we all know from being in this uh, industry that that two-sided marketplaces are hard, you know, and mm-hmm. from the very earliest days of eBay, yeah. you had sellers complaining or buyers complaining. It's just hard to balance the 
balance the two. I mean, Airbnb's approach is clear. Like they are kind of a host-driven community. And they, they started as hosts and they cater to their hosts. Uber is really a rider-driven community. The founders started out wanting classy rides around San Francisco. And so, you know, they've you, you kind of have to pick where you start. And so Uber now is sort of focusing on the driver community and has a lot of work to do, I think, to quell some of the dissatisfaction, particularly among full-time drivers. And, you know, if we all, when we get into these cars and talk to our drivers, we know that dissatisfaction is there. Yep. And partly, you know, David, as you said, because of the sort of relentless lowering of the fares to try to position Uber as a as a uh, alternative to uh, to car ownership, and you, you touch on another thing that that's been a tech theme for us before and um, couldn't ring truer here is is founder DNA. When you when you describe the culture and values and um, and character of a company, not even through like the internal workings, but in the way that the the product experience feels when you use it, it's it's almost indistinguishable from the founder's personality. And very rarely does a company, even when it goes through multiple CEOs, significantly deviate from that that founder DNA. I think we talked about it in the next episode, David. Um, we talked about it definitely in the uh, the Amazon episode. And it, it just, uh, companies take the, the shoes of their founders and, and stay that way kind of forever. Yeah. Go ahead, Brad. Well, I was going to say, um, you know, Garrett Camp is really the inventor of Uber, yeah. and uh, and he's on the board, but isn't a large presence in the company. Um, and the idea, you know, every every company I like to say is has to sort of combine uh, idealism and ruthlessness. And the idealism of Uber almost comes from Lyft. You know, it's funny because uh, mm. Logan and John from Lyft are talking about replacing car ownership and solving traffic on on the, on the highways of L.A. far before Travis ever was at Uber. Mm-hmm. I think that he drew a lot of their idealism and kind of borrowed it. And I think it's authentic and it's now a mission at Uber as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if you know, if, if, if that does make a difference and we'll see, I think the genuineness, of, the idealism is more genuine at Lyft than it is at Uber. <laughs> And yeah. I certainly don't mean that that founder DNA is a, a negative slide. I think for kind of for better or for worse, you're uh, you know you're 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 stuck with it. It's it's your personality. The um, the tech theme that I wanted to talk about is I think in many ways just a uh, a slightly different perspective on the culture question, you know, and the founder DNA um, from a investor view uh, as opposed to a kind of internal company view. And that's the, what this story of both Uber and Didi really highlights for me is the difference between building a moat and scorching the earth, you know, <laughs> and, and these are companies, all of them in ride sharing really, you know, I mean, I think Lyft has, you know, gotten dragged into it too. And probably all the other companies around the world, like they've taken this scorched earth approach and they've gotten huge, you know, probably you know, I, I, I don't know, but I would suspect that just in terms of net revenue to the company, Uber is probably larger than Airbnb at this point and, and, and Didi perhaps as well. Um, they've gotten big quickly, but you have to ask how sustainable is what they're doing. Um, and, and I think at, at points along the way, you know, it's clear through this story that Uber and others, you know, thought perhaps capital raising was going to be a sustainable advantage and a moat that they could build, um, thought that driver density was going to be sustainable. Well, it turns out it's really easy for drivers to multi-home <laughs> and they do all the time, you know, and I think about that versus, versus as you juxtapose in the book, Brad, you know, kind of Airbnb and 
while it's while what they're doing and what they're what they're the market they're attacking looks very similar you know i do think they've taken a much smarter approach to building a moat and that's around you know focusing on the community you know things like a host could multi-home but you know by making reviews and trust and interaction between the community the kind of focal point of of the network you know when once you have 50 positive reviews on airbnb you know you're not going to spend much time on homeaway because you're going to get so many more bookings and that's i think something that the ride sharing companies haven't and, and i don't know if it's possible to create something like that or if the dynamics of the market are just such that it's not you know something where you can build a moat um like that but as an investor it makes me think about you know those dynamics yeah david it's really interesting to think about how could uber Lyft, DD, how could ride sharing in general be better at building their flywheels for defensibility? Because I, I love that point that it's just not as the network effects just are not as strong as an Airbnb or other businesses. Like, uh, at least in the global sense, what could they do to, to bolster that? I think that there's a belief, particularly among some Uber investors, that um, maybe there is a moat. We just don't see it right now. That when the the capital environment changes and these companies have to get profitable, we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna separate the men from the boys, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and so we don't yet know because none of these companies have had to get real or rationalize yeah. rationalize their balance statements. Um, you know, Lyft clearly still loses a, a lot of money. You know, and they they uh, they discount. They're still in expansion mode. They don't have the scale that Uber has. So. You know, in, in some respects, it almost might be too early to make uh, kind of, you know, judgment on the value of these businesses. And and the and there's ambiguity around driverless cars. Um, there's still some regulatory questions. I mean, the, there there's I would say that there's a, there's still a lot of regulatory ambiguity around Airbnb. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a separate topic, yeah. but almost like cities are waking up now to the potential. Uh, and the disruptive power of Airbnb and are beginning to wonder if they want residential communities to have uh, little hotels sprinkled throughout and all the problems and, <laughs> and economic opportunities that brings. And so that's Airbnb's challenge. I mean, Uber, I think, has to hope that we move into a different capital environment and the, all these companies like Lyft, but also like Juno, this New York startup that's giving its drivers equity, that all that stuff starts to look you know, very unsustainable in, a, in an environment where companies have to go public and they have to show profits. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, Juno is winning this battle for hearts and minds in New York of drivers because, you know, drivers can feel a part of it. And we have no idea whether any of that is sustainable. So <laughs> uh, it's still we're still, you know, 2017, we are still kind of high on the on the uh, on the drug that is internet stock, yep. right? And and this amazing opportunity. Um, it se- I agree, David. It seems to me like the moat is uh, a lot shallower in the ride sharing market. But I think that there is a belief, and it, it may be a sort of errant one, that uh, time will anoint uh, Uber uh, as as the king, and we'll see. Brad, thank you for bringing your uh, uh, your seasoned journalistic take to this. And you're right, the my crazy about- metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, you want to run to the conclusion? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I mean, I think we discussed earlier, you know, my grade on this, you know, is probably, a, I think I'd give it a, well, I think I'm going to give it a B plus for both sides because it was clearly the right thing to do. And um, uh, in that it was just going to be unsustainable going forward. Um, but also sort of, you know, I, I don't get into a territory, I guess a little bit punitively, like, I'm scratching my head a little bit as like, if I were a board member of one of these companies, 
how would I let the situation get to this point? <laughs> and, and, but Brad, you make the great point that like, you know, hey, this was a good investment for Uber, you know, despite all that distraction. But I just keep coming back to thinking about what are they building here at these companies and what is going to be sustainable and 10 years from now, you know, if you're, if you really don't know, you know, 10 years into the company or close to 10 years into the company in Uber's case, if you don't know what the mode is you're building, um, that would make me really scared. So, um, B plus for me. I, you know, it's interesting to think about, I, I phrased it in the raw dollar perspective earlier that they got, you know, two to three X on the dollars that they, they poured into China, um, in terms of the highly illiquid stock that they have in, in Didi. And that's sort of the, like, private equity approach. It's like if Uber wanted to be a conglomerate, then like hooray, they they put in some dollars and got, you know, three times those dollars out. Um, I don't know that it actually gives them, it doesn't, if the machine that they're building is Uber technologies proper, then what did they really get out of, you know, investing in, in DD? Does it actually help the Uber business to have a large value in DD? And so I think with Uber, you know, to me, it was like it was their best option and it was the best record to pull at this point and a, a you know, highly profitable one. Um, but, David, I, I sort of agree that, like, I don't, I don't know that it was that strategically interesting other than kind of competitive truce. And then from the DD side, you know, you got to wonder, is there any way they could have gotten away with this without giving up 70, 17 to 20 percent of their company? So that, that's, a, that's a little rough, too. So, you know, I think... Um, I think I'm going to go A minus for for Uber because there there might have been a lot more interesting things they could have done with that capital over those years, um, and I'm going to go with uh, B minus for uh, for D. Brad, what do you think? Well, I don't know that I want to get into the business of the grading, <laughs> but I'll, the only point I would add is that both of these uh, companies and their investors and their founding teams took enormous amounts of dilution to wage this battle. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you're, a, let's say, a Cheng Wei right now, a Didi, and you, you know, you, you had a certain percentage of your company, uh, and then you merge with Kwaidi, and then you merge with Uber China, and, you know, and you're sitting there probably with your low single digit ownership percentage and, and still extraordinary, you know, stake. But, but like, what did, you know, what did you gain for all that dilution? Um, you know, was there, I, I guess, I guess the, the question is, was there a way to win in the marketplace? Um, and, and what we've been saying, um, yeah. is, is that perhaps not, right? Perhaps, uh, it was, it was, uh, I mean, Didi always had the high ground in China because it had the integration with Tencent. So the question is, was there a way to just kind of leverage that position and, and, uh, circumnavigate all these awkward mergers? Um, I don't know. M maybe there wasn't because it's, it's just too easy for other uh, competitors that come in with alliances with the big three. So uh, I don't know. I think we have to give Cheng Wei in particular uh, credit for, you know, moving very quickly from being an anonymous middle manager at Alibaba to really joining <laughs> the ranks of the upstarts. And it's why I included him in the book and why I was very impressed with his journey. Yeah. Ben, do you want to really quickly uh, mention uh, our yeah, follow-up and hot take? Yeah. So we just have uh, one dimension listeners. Um, the, Snapchat IPO will price on the evening of March 1st, go out on the 2nd for the first day of trading. Um, David and I are going to be recording a, uh, an episode on the 3rd uh, in the morning, and then hopefully uh, producing that and getting it out over the weekend uh, on the 4th. So um, we'll let you know when that's here, and uh, stay tuned for far too early to tell speculation and lots of uh, uh, 
you know, lots of fun analysis on Snapchat because we haven't really covered the IPO yet, or I'm sorry, the, the S1 yet. And no matter what happens the first day of trading, there is some gold to talk about in there. Absolutely. Carve out? Yeah. Um, I'll do mine real quick. So I, uh, you know, I, I've, I think our carve outs collectively between us, David, have been wait but why like five times so far in this show. But um, I was recently on a, a flight back from uh, from London and had just like a, a way too much time and read a whole bunch of wait but why. And the um, this one from 2014 that I really love is why you should stop caring what other people think, taming the mammoth. And he does a he he brings up that there's a really great idea um, that you know you shouldn't care what other people think, but it's 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 deeper than just like this this thing that we always talk about. Like we frequently uh, talk about how we're people pleasers, or you know we overweight our perception of what other people are are talking about. Um, or, or thinking of us. And, and really, they're just not thinking that much about us. They're consumed in their own lives. Their head's probably in their smartphone. But then links it to this evolutionary track that I never really thought about before. That was, it was evolutionarily advantageous for other people to like you, for you to be a member of the tribe and have other people like you and want to look out for you and feel sameness so that they would protect you in events. And so it, you can sort of trace that, that um, you know, every, every splashy article that we read is, you know, don't care what other people think about you. And, and here's some new research to show that you really need to be your own person and underweight the, the, that influence in your life. And like, as it turns out, that, that's really, really grained into us or, 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 you know, it's possibly the result of natural selection of that being a highly advantageous thing in the fact. And we're really fighting biology there. And so it's a, a really cool yeah. way to tie those two things together. Yeah. You know, who probably doesn't have that trait <laughs> is Travis, but, uh, <laughs> or maybe he cultivates it through Zen practice, but, yeah. um, mine real quick, uh, is a podcast, uh, conversations with Tyler by Tyler Cowan, who we've talked about on the show before, um, co-author of the marginal revolution blog, really good. His first one is with Peter Thiel. And, uh, well, I certainly don't agree with all of Peter's, um, uh, statements, uh, it's a fascinating conversation. He has another great one with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Well worth listening to. Um, Brad, uh, do you want to do you want to close it out with with your uh, recommendation for our, our listeners to listen to or, or perhaps read? Well, in the coming sure, weeks? sure. Uh, aside from my own uh, touting my own book, which naturally <laughs> needs to be on you're welcome to recommend your own book. But I'll, we I'll, recommend well, it. Well, thank you. So I'll, I'll I'll I will not do that. But I'll I will say, and this is an easy one to recommend, but you know, the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari was, oh, was, so was seminal good. for so many people. And he's got a new book out that I'm just starting, um, but enjoying very much. Uh, Homo, Homo Deus, I think is how you pronounce it, A Brief History of Tomorrow, which, uh, you know, is, is him kind of looking at the future and automation and, and the future of humanity. And I just find his writing to be mesmerizing. I listened to the first book on on uh, Audible. I'm reading this one, but I might actually get the Audible. And um, he's just brilliant, you know, and he puts everything in perspective. We can be so consumed uh, with the, you know, a, the, the daily ebb and flow of the tech industry. So to be able to step back and look at humanity in an epical uh, time frame is why I just love his his work. So he's got a new one coming out that everybody should read. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, that's it for us. Um, to close it down, I just want to say uh, if you want to join the Slack, we're there. Join us 400 strong and uh, and would love to bring you into the conversation. Share the show if you liked it on Twitter, Facebook, rate us on iTunes, wherever you feel that would be uh, um, something you want to do. Go read the upstarts. It's fantastic. And thanks so much to, to Brad for joining us. 
And uh, thanks to our, our sponsor this episode, Silicon Valley Bank. And we will see you for the next one.